Please join me in the uh, in the book of Philippians in chapter two. And if you'll find your place in verse 19. Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse 19. And we'll read through to the end of the chapter. It should be uh, easy to find now. Your Bible has opened there now for a number of years, so it should be well worn. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. This is what the Bible says. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's worth, proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all, and he has been and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honour such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. We have been looking at the final verses of Philippians chapter 2. And we've been confronted, hopefully you'll recall if you've been with us for any amount of time, three fascinating characters. So far we've looked at the Apostle Paul who had a vision or a view of eternity. Then we looked at Timothy, who we considered as a faithful friend and a spiritual servant. And today we begin our study on this man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is a name which is virtually unknown to most believers. Epaphroditus, not a message you hear all that often, probably on a man named Epaphroditus. Very little space is given to this man, Epaphroditus, in the scriptures He is an unsung hero. But what is revealed is precious and worth our due diligence in his study. Apart from Jesus Christ, who is my greatest hero, and I trust yours, uh, over the years I have uh, developed some sub-heroes. And those are those who I seek to emulate. Uh, In fact, I've prayed many times that God would give me the zeal and passion of Paul, the care and concern of Barnabas, the power-packed preaching of Peter, the love and affection of John, the commitment and endurance of Stephen, and the self-effacement of Timothy. But having spent much time looking at this man Epaphroditus this week, I add a new sub-hero to my list of which I seek to emulate Because in this man, we see a man so devoted to service uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What I want to do this morning is give you a quick overview, a quick summary of this man, Epaphroditus, generally speaking, and then we're just going to look at one focus. So here's a few things. If you're taking notes, these are some interesting things to note about this man, Epaphroditus. He's only referred to on two occasions in the scripture. Here in verse 25, and if you will just turn over a page, perhaps in your Bible, to chapter 4 and verse 18, this is the only other place where he is mentioned in the scriptures. Chapter 4 and verse 18, the apostle Paul, at the conclusion of his letter, writes, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus the gifts you have sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Those are the two times in scripture he is named by his actual name. But we learn a few things from the passages. Uh, One of the things we learn is that he was a member of the church at Philippi. And when I say member, I don't mean that he was one of those who'd, you know, been part of the constitution and, you know, got up the front necessarily. We're not talking about modern membership. We're talking about he was, uh, he was affiliated and associated with the church there at Philippi. And it was that church that commissioned him out Uh, They gave uh, towards the Apostle Paul's ministry. Remember, the Apostle Paul is presently under house arrest in Rome and they delegated the responsibility of taking a love offering that they had gathered to the Apostle Paul and they sent this man, Epaphroditus, to do that on their behalf. So he is from Philippi. He's a member of that church there in Philippi. Here's some interesting facts for you to note to give you a picture of this man, Epaphroditus, and his service. The trip from Philippi to Rome is between 700 and 1200 miles. That is 1,126 kilometers or 1,931 kilometers, depending upon the route that you take. It definitely included a sea voyage, a treacherous terrain, and the risk of robbers and looters was an ever-present danger in this particular day. In the very best conditions the very best, a fit man could complete this journey by foot in just over six weeks. Six weeks of your life spent journeying. In less favourable conditions, and that's the absolute best position, in less favourable conditions, it could take three months to do this journey. It's important to note as well, which I think is very, very interesting, that there is no biblical evidence anywhere to be found that suggests that Paul and Epaphroditus knew each other before Epaphroditus went to Rome. You say, what do you mean? There's no mention of him early in uh, in, uh, Philippi when they go through. Not to say that he wasn't there, but there's no mention of him. And until... Unless he was saved when Paul and Silas came through 12 to 13 years earlier, he was a stranger. And I would suggest it's very likely that Paul did not know Epaphroditus because a small group of people began that church. Paul and Silas stayed there for just a few days and went. Very likely he is the result of the evangelism of the church in Philippi there. And I'll give you some more reasons why I believe that in just a little while. But it's very important to note that they probably did not know each other because there is a reasonable lapse of time between when Epaphroditus comes to Rome and when he goes home. And let me show you how that's possible. If it took him at best six weeks to get there. The Bible tells us he was very, very sick. 
during his time in Rome. So there was some recovery time. But it also tells us that the church at Philippi were aware of his sickness, which means that at least another six weeks must have gone by because someone had communicated back to the church at Philippi that he was sick. Do you follow me? Follow the logic there? So at at the very minimum, he is around in this period of time for 12 weeks minimum. I would suggest to you it is significantly longer. And because of the fact of how ill this man was, I think he was with the Apostle Paul for a reasonable portion of time. And we learn all of that just by a few verses that we'll look at in a moment in Philippians. This man was near, nearly in a position where he was a fatality of the illness. Interestingly, if this really was what I'm suggesting, Paul's first introduction to Epaphroditus, then everything that he says about him in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 25 and and onwards was learned, was intel gathered from the time that he was with him. Now, that is very interesting. Because when we look at this passage, we find that the Apostle Paul makes six designations about this man, Epaphroditus, which is what we're going to look at. And over the next couple of weeks, and I'm not too sure because I'm loving this character, Epaphroditus, it could be the next month. But however long it takes us to get through this, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at his designations, first of all, this morning. Then we're going to look at his desire sometime next week, the week after, however long it takes. Then we're going to look at his distress. And then finally, we're going to look at his devotion. Unless the Lord changes the plan totally, that's the roadmap for however long it takes. This morning, what I want to cover, what I want us to look at is this first aspect of Epaphroditus, his designations, that which was given to him by the Apostle Paul. And so, as is usually my almost ritual these days, we are looking at part one of however many parts there will be. We're looking at Epaphroditus, a devoted servant, part one. Heavenly Father, as always, I turn my attention towards you before uh, seeking to preach and uh, expose the truth of your word. I ask, O Lord, that you would help uh, my voice, my heart, my understanding, that I would communicate effectively the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, we, each of us here, uh, would have hearts that are prepared not only to learn something of this man, uh, but, Lord, to learn something of ourselves to be confronted with the truths that are seen in this man's life and then seek to emulate them in our own life. Help us, we pray, for the next little while as we study some of these designations. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Epaphroditus, a devoted servant. In verse 25, this is what the Bible says. I have thought it necessary, needful that is, to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. It's quite a few words there that are used to describe Epaphroditus. And we note that in that verse 25, the Apostle Paul lists off a number of titles or labels. I've called them designations. And each of these designations give us an insight into this man and his character. And so watch carefully because some of them we're going to spend just a little bit longer on. Others we're just going to fly by. The first thing I want you to note, not a designation given him by the Apostle Paul, but his natural name. I want you to note that, Epaphroditus. First thing to note is his natural name. Gives us some insight into who he is. Let me explain how. The name Epaphroditus literally means lovely, 
handsome or charming. Now, I must admit, I'm surprised my mother didn't call me Epaphroditus, (laughs) but she probably didn't know. But Epaphroditus, lovely, charming, handsome. Interesting, that's what it means, but something else that is found when you study the Greek word Epaphroditus, it's of pagan origin, contains this within the word, belonging to Aphrodite, Epaphroditus, belonging to Aphrodite. Now, most of us have heard that word before, Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the Greek goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, procreation. It was a common name in the Roman Empire. In fact, uh, as I studied this week, there are many, many times where this name, surprisingly, a name that we very rarely have heard, Epaphroditus was common because it was one who was connected to Aphrodite's. This gives us an insight into this man's home life and upbringing. Because don't forget, in this day and age, we today we talk to one another and we know each other by name. But when you named a child in this day, that name had meaning. It wasn't just, well, we're going to call them Bob and we're going to call them Peter. We are calling them this because we either want them to be this or we see within them something about that. And we know that because uh, the angel said about the Lord Jesus, the angel said about John and all these other people in the scriptures, their names had a reason. Why? Epaphroditus. Well, here is what I suggest. Again, as we look at the scripture, we don't know enough to be absolutely sure of this, but it does give us some insight. Evidently, Epaphroditus was not from a Jewish household. We all get that. The Jews don't call their children the sons and daughters of Aphrodites. That is a Roman Greek concept. So this is not a Jewish man, which is not surprising because he's from Philippi and Philippi is not a Jewish place. In fact, you remember in Acts 16, when they go, they go down to the river because there's no synagogue there. There's only a few people meeting by the river to pray and mostly women. Um, So it's not surprising. We're dealing with a Greco-Roman province there in Philippi. But the name may give us an indication that his folks were members of the prevalent imperial cult, which was very well known in Philippi at this time. This is the cult that worshipped the emperor as God and uh, displayed that in a great way. Of the 10,000 to 15,000 people who lived in Philippi at this time, the large majority of them were engaged in what is called the imperial cult, as historians tell us. So there is a very good chance that this man's parents worshipped The gods and goddesses, but particularly the imperial cult of the emperor. And here is Epaphroditus, very likely, growing up in a family of gross idolatry. Gross idolatry. And because of his name and the location, we come to terms with all of that. We cannot be 100% sure, but to me it makes good sense as we look at history, that Epaphroditus was from a home of flagrant idolatry. So, okay, why do you tell us all that? Why is that designation interesting? Well, this is what it, it tells me as I think about it. Though Epaphroditus was pagan by physical birth, he encountered the truth of Jesus Christ and was born again. 
And so never can we ever say that I have come from a a background that prohibits me from ever coming to understand the truth about Jesus Christ. Here is a man who by very definition is a son or a daughter or belonging to the goddess of love prevalent in that day. It doesn't matter what you've come from. What matters is whether or not you have been changed by the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what matters, is it not? It's not where I came from, it is where I am going to. It is not what I have done, it is what Christ has done. And that, to me, is a great, wonderful introductory thought about this man, Epaphroditus. And we see that his physical name denoted a history of idolatry, but he has a new name in heaven, Revelation tells us. Epaphroditus is a shining example of one who experienced that transforming power of the gospel, where once an idol worshipper, Now a servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, Folks, this morning, uh, we heard a testimony of someone who used to be an idol worshipper. You say, what? Beth didn't say that. Well, no, she didn't. But you know what the truth is? Every one of us were idol worshippers. We were all living in idolatry. We were all concerned with our own things. We worshipped ourselves or things of this life. And until the Lord Jesus stepped in and by the power of the Spirit of God, we were justified and regenerated and changed. We were idolaters by nature. In fact, Second Corinthians tells us that we were such some of these fornicators, idolaters, uh, effeminate and so on. The list goes on. Uh, that's us before Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And Epaphroditus is such a man, but he has been changed. Praise the Lord. Have you? Have you been changed? Is this a reality in your life? You say, yes, I, I was an Epaphroditus. But praise God, the Lord Jesus stepped in and changed my life. So that is the very definition of his name gives us insight into perhaps what was his upbringing, his physical name. I want you to notice in verse 25, the Apostle Paul now gives him a designation specifically, Epaphroditus, my brother. I want you to notice this, my brother. I want you to notice the possessive pronoun, my. Not a brother, not the brother, my brother. A little bit like what we read this morning, the Lord is my Shepherd. This is an interesting thing. It's not your brother, it's my brother. Which is interesting if they really have only just met there in Rome for the first time. That gives us a little bit of an insight into what the Apostle Paul thinks of what a brother is. Interestingly enough, this is just the general term for brother. Uh, Adelphos, which is the Greek word which is used over 340 times in the New Testament for all kinds of relationships. Uh, Physical brothers, um, uh, it's in relationship to kinfolk. It's in relationship to uh, just generally mankind. But Paul breathes new life into this word when he says, my brother. He's not talking physically. Paul's a Jew. Epaphroditus, he's from somewhere else. This is not a physical connection. We know what this is. This is a spiritual connection. This is the relationship between two who have been unified and joined because they have, been, they have entered into the family of God. Paul is referring to Epaphroditus as his spiritual brother. And it's at this point I want to make some comments as we think about that designation. You know, the church is not a place. It is a people. It's not a foundation. It's a family. It's not a building. 
It is brethren who have equally been adopted into the family of God. I am almost at a point of screaming today when I hear people say, let's go and meet at the church. Or isn't that a nice church? And they're speaking of the edifice. It is driving me crazy these days because I know what that means and what that has done. We have somehow made church a building or a place we meet when it's not that. It is a people. The word church means called out ones. And we've got to stop calling this place the church. People have got to stop referring to this as the church. This here is the church of Jesus Christ, a local church, part of the greater body, which is the bride of Jesus Christ. We've got to get this term right. And uh, probably on my gravestone, you might write, he believed church was people. Because that's, I seem to constantly talk about this. Um, it bothers me a great deal because when we change that, we lose the joy and the connection and the unity that is ours, the synergy that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we minimalize and reduce it to a building of stone, mortar and brick. Christ did not die for bricks and mortar, died for people who he called out. For himself. We're going to get this concept of church right. We've got to understand the union that is ours in Jesus Christ. See, here's what I've come to appreciate, or not appreciate, I should say, is that most Christians today interact with one another like members of a social club, like a recreational club, like a sports club, with a casual carelessness that pervades the church of Jesus Christ, left, right and centre. That was not always the way. That was not at all the way. In fact, our theme verse tells us that they devoted themselves to something called fellowship, to something called breaking of bread, to ministering together, to being unified together in the cause of Jesus Christ. The early church were not satisfied with once a week waving from across the room or once a week shaking the hand of a fellow Christian and talking about the cricket score. That's not what the early church was all about. The early church was never about that. They were brothers and sisters. And you know what brings brothers and sisters together? Adversity. Affliction. You get two brothers who might fight all day long at home, but you get an intruder into that house, or you get someone who wants to take care of that other brother, what happens? Man, they are sticking together back to back. Yeah, you want to take him, you've got to take me first. And you know what, that, that comes because of affliction and persecution. And so some people find it strange when I say, Lord, bring persecution. Send affliction, because I know based on scripture that when suffering and affliction comes into our life, we stick together because Jesus Christ is our Lord and we say, hey, we're going to get through this together. Whereas the rest of the time, it's a bit more like a social club these days. Hi, bye, hope you have a good week. See you later. Yeah, I'll be praying for you. Occasionally we spiritualize it. But this is not how the Apostle Paul saw church family. In fact, the the age old question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that in the church is yes, I am my brother's keeper. You know, the Bible makes it clear that the church, the local church is like a body. And when it relies upon one another it functions correctly and effectively but see the problem today is that we're all so independent we're all so busy doing our own thing and wanting to achieve our own goals we're not operating like a body in the general sense of church first corinthians 12 12 says for just as the body has one is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with christ 
First Corinthians eleven twenty six later on says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here's what ought to happen in church. When I say church, you know what I mean by church now, right? Not here in the building. This is what ought to happen. Someone says, uh, listen, I've got something I, I want to share. It's fairly heartbreaking. Something's happened this week and there's some sorrow in that life. Um, when we really get this together, our tears will fill up. Our eyes will fill with tears because we will be compassionate and caring for that person. And then someone will come in uh, another time and they'll say, hey, I just want to give praise to the Lord. I got, I got a promotion at work or the Lord supplied some need that I had. And you know what will happen? We will rejoice with them, not in a, you know, a pseudo interest way, but in a genuine way. I'm so thrilled that God provided for your needs and I'm so uh, compassionate towards your needs. I, I feel the struggles you're having this week. That's what church is supposed to look like because it's a body functions together. When one hurts, they all hurt. When one joys, we all joy. Um, Sadly, as I survey church today, I don't see that. And I'm not necessarily saying here, necessarily I'm thrilled with where we're at, although I want us to be better all the time. Um, Is this us? Is this the reality? When Paul says, Epaphroditus, you are my brother, is that how we operate? Is that what kind of relationship we have? You know, the Bible tells us furthermore that Christians are members of the household of God. Uh, don't just let that slide by. Members of God's household. Now, I wasn't going to use this illustration, but we've got a king sitting in front of us. So this is perfect. If the king calls you up, not this king, he's not a real king, he's a pseudo king. But a real king, if a real king calls you up and says, hey, listen, I want you to come join me in the palace. I want you to be my son. Come in, all of the benefits that are mine are yours. Now, some of us would say, no, thank you. But most of us would say, man, that is amazing that the king would want me to come be part of that. That's us. That's us. In fact, I read a quote not too long ago. The only person who is permitted to go and wake up the king in the early morning of the hours is the son or daughter who says, Daddy, can I have a drink? We have the privilege of going into the inner chamber with our God, the King, because we are his children. Yes, we are his servants, but we are his children. We've been adopted into his family. We have all the rights and the power and the privilege of Jesus Christ, our brother. We are members of his household. And when we talk about princesses and princes, that's what this is in the spiritual realm. That's who we are. Not because of anything we've done. We have a commonality in Christ, a union in unction. That's who we are. I'm looking at my notes going, yeah, right, we're never going to get through this. This could be seven weeks. I might only finish on this next part. But I do want to just point out something that's really important as we consider this matter of my brother. Just a simple word, but it has huge ramifications. I've listed here, which is why I'm telling you I don't think we're going to get too much further. I've listed here nine similarities between a physical family and a spiritual family. So nine things that we see that relate to a physical family uh, and even a dysfunctional physical family that we can see in the spiritual realm because the spiritual family in many ways is similar to the physical family. So when Paul says, my brother, what's he mean? Here's nine things for you to think about. Well, if you're part of the physical family, it's the same bloodline, isn't it? Physical family. Did you know that you are part of the same spiritual bloodline. 
Because in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul, in speaking with the elders of Ephesus at Miletus, says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's a command to the elders, but notice what he says. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So when you look at one another here this morning and you find in them uh, the same kind of uh, union in that the Holy Spirit lives within them, you can say with absolute certainty based on Scripture, you are my brother, you are my sister. We are bought with the same blood. We're from the same place and that place is Jesus Christ. That should thrill us. That ought to move us, brothers and sisters, and many of us can attest to the fact that spiritually we are closer to our spiritual family than our physical family. And God designed it that way. When you come into the family of God, you have just gained a huge family. Anybody who names the name of Jesus Christ is your brother and sister. And may I say, you don't have to agree on absolutely everything in order to be family, do you? I hope not. Because I don't absolutely agree with everybody in my physical family, and I'm sure you don't either in yours, in absolutely everything. You don't have to, but you are from the same source, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing I note here is that in a family, there is authority. There is headship. In the spiritual family, we are under the authority of the head. Ephesians 1 verse 22 says this, And he put, God put all things under the Lord Jesus Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. When we talk about the family of God, there is spiritual headship, and that is Jesus Christ. You know, we we live in a culture today where religion tells us that uh, the Pope is the head of the church. That's not what my Bible says. Uh, Father, what's his name up the road, and and vicar down the road there, and so on. They're not the head of the church. This pastor here is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the sole head of the church, and he gives no competition Nobody else is the head of the church. And it was uh, the Apostle Peter uh, who confirmed the reality that this um, uh, that Christ was going to build his church when the Lord Jesus said to him, and the Lord Jesus responded by saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Some people say he'll build it on Peter. That is not true. He'll build it on the rock of the profession that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the head of his church. He is the bridegroom. And that's crucial to understand. We have headship in the family of God. I notice that in families, it doesn't always happen, but thirdly, they work together for a common good. You know, maybe dad or mum sits down with the family and says, hey, listen, we're going to achieve this. All the kids go, well, really, do we have to do that? Sometimes, and that's like us, isn't it, sometimes? But that's family. We're going to achieve something together here. We're going to work together. We note in the spiritual realm, thirdly, that we work together for a common good as family. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It is a privilege to work together for the common good of God. We are building his kingdom. That's what God designed us to do. We're not here to build monuments to ourselves. We're not here to build empires. We are here for God's glory and for the building of his kingdom. Fourthly, I'm pretty sure we're just going to get to the end of the nine. Just call it quits for today. Number four. Family is designed to encourage one another and spend time together. Physically. Physical family. 
But spiritual family is also called to encourage one another and spend time together. I know I have uh, over the years heard mum say to me many times when I was living at home, you're always out all the time, come spend some time with your family. And uh, that might be true of some of us, we, uh, we often go and do lots of things, but it's designed that we would spend time with our family, right? That's the design physically. It's also the design spiritually. In Hebrews 10 verses 24 to 25, the author of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know what I find is interesting? I talk to some pastors and I think it's to their own uh, indictment really and I say, why is it that we have moved so far from New Testament Christianity? You know, they were meeting daily, they were encouraging one another and they say quite often to me things like, that was a different time, we're not supposed to do that now. We've all we've got different lives. And I think that's a sad reality because my Bible here says, you do this the more as the day is approaching. What day? The day of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is going to be more and more reality because this is all we're going to have soon because sooner or later we're going to lose our jobs, we're going to have martyrdom happening in our, in our country and this is a reality. As the day is approaching, do this more, not less. And as wickedness prevails, come together some more for that refreshing and as evil is constantly uh, showing itself in our culture, we come together some more and we pray some more and we, and we plead with one another to get right with God. Because the day is approaching. It's getting worse, not better. We're not living in a place where things are on the up here, not on the down. And so we need to encourage one another and spend time together. Number five, something people don't really like to talk about. But in families, there is discipline and there is restoration. It is appointed by God that parents would discipline their children. Uh, In our day and age, we're told, hey, you can't do that anymore physically. And in fact, in our day and age, spiritually, we're told that ought not to be a reality either. But did you know that the normal family life involves discipline? The normal spiritual life involves discipline, personally and then corporately. This is a reality and there will come a time, no doubt, in our church, and I'm thankful that we don't have to do it at this point, but there will come a time where we will need to deal with discipline or restoration or or flagrant sin that occurs in our midst and we need to deal with that, recognising that that's how the Lord has it. He's designed it that way. Not that we would sin, but that when we do sin, we are able to deal with restoration. And Galatians chapter 6 reminds us, brothers, if someone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. But watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here's what I see happening in churches today, however, is that we're not really seeking to restore, we're seeking to remove. Someone does something in the church assembly that is open and and public and it's sinful and nobody wants to deal with it and and deal with it in a biblical way. So what do we do? See you later. Get out. You're just causing problems. We're looking for a way to remove them rather than restore them, rather than come alongside and say, hey, sister, hey, brother, I know you've messed up here. We all have. Let's try and get it sorted out. Take some time out and let's build this relationship so that the church of Jesus Christ grows some more. So that a greater testimony comes out of this. I don't see that happening in churches today. And yet that is normal Christianity. Discipline, restoration, working together, functioning as a body. When the body is broken, we minister to the broken need as opposed to let's get rid of that part. It's just not something we want part of us. That's not how God intended it. Number six. This one's an interesting one when we think about the family of God. 
and the physical family. Uh, If you have a physical family, anything like mine growing up, you will know that there have been moments of friction and there have been moments of forgiveness. Did you know that the church will have friction? Are you aware that that is part of what happens? You know why? Because we are sinful. Because we are living in the flesh. It's sort of like that uh, that old pastor who said, I would be the very best pastor if it were not for my people. <laughs> and the husband who says, I would be the best husband if it wasn't for my wife. And we, we, we can make all kinds of excuses, can't we, about all kinds of things. But the reality at the end of the day is that there is friction because we're people. And we do have problems and we have differences and, and occasionally we're going to offend someone here and we're going to say something there or, you know... Uh, um, Karcha came to me a while ago and said, I don't like your tie. That was real friction. Actually, it wasn't because she bought me a new one and that was even better. But on a serious note, we have friction in church, don't we? We have, we have times where maybe I didn't have the best attitude on that day and I rubbed someone up the wrong way. That's going to happen, isn't it? We're not a perfect church. Um, there's going to be times where there's some problems like there are in families when, when children fight. and there's, But the key there is not that the friction's there, but that the forgiveness ensues. That the forgive, And that we would be humble enough to say, you know what, brother, sister, I had a bad attitude the other day. Would you forgive me? And, and the nature of that sin, if that affects others, that we would go to them too and say, you know what, I was just living in the flesh. I should, I, I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me for that? That was not a Christ-like attitude. If we maintain the humility in a local assembly like that, hey, we'll have some friction. I'm not opposed to the friction. What I want is then us to follow into that realm of forgiveness and humility. We say, ah, I did mess up. I did. I'm really sorry. I don't want that to happen again. Would you please forgive me? And you say, is there proof of this in the early church? Or is there ever? In Acts chapter 15, verses 35 to 40, I won't read it for you right now, but here's what happens. Paul and Barnabas have been serving together. They've been doing some incredible things. They've seen God's mighty hand at work. So have we, by the way. Paul and Barnabas, they're working together. And then Paul says, all right, Barnabas, I think it's time that we go visit those churches again. And Barnabas says, great, all right, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, hang on, John Mark, he deserted us on the last journey. He's not coming with us. No, 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 he's not coming. Now, bear in mind, what we don't know, perhaps, is that the relationship between Paul and Barnabas is an interesting one. It was Barnabas who discipled Paul, not Paul who discipled Barnabas. It was Barnabas who said, Paul, you come up with me and I'll help you and train you and teach you. And he did that. But Paul takes the lead and he says, no, we're not taking John Mark with us. He is not someone I want to come with us. He he, he, he forsook us last time. There's some friction there. So strong was the contention, the Bible says this. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took John Mark with him and they sailed off to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas, another man serving the Lord, and they went off. So serious was this friction. And may I say to you, Paul was in the wrong. Paul was in the wrong. And we find that out later because the Apostle Paul then realises John Mark is profitable. And he says later on, bring John Mark, he's profitable to me now. Something had happened in the Apostle Paul. Barnabas is always the compassionate, loving one. And he's the one who says, hey, listen, let's take a mark. I know he messed up. I know he did. But he's going to come with us. Let's train him some more. And there's a tendency sometimes for us to say, hey, listen, no, no, no. Let's, let's leave John Mark. Do you know what he did last week? Do you know what John Mark did last week? Do you know what he did last month? And we, we bring up all this stuff. And what we actually need to do is say, hey, yeah, you know what? There has been some friction. There's been some sharp disagreement here. 
But let's get on with it. Let's not live in it. Let's not let this become a bitterness problem. Let's go on serving the Lord. And so there are moments of friction, but there are also moments of forgiveness. Number seven, I can't believe I thought I'd get through this. I've got no idea whatsoever. Number seven, (laughs) growth and change. Families, families grow. Families change, don't they? Families don't stay the same. If your children are still infants when they're 30, you have reason to be concerned. Unless they've got Down syndrome and they're like my sister and only this high because she's still that height. But I'm talking about, generally speaking, we're talking about if you have an infant and they, they don't grow up, we've got a problem, haven't we? The church is designed to evolve, and I don't mean evolution, Darwinism, I mean change, alright? The church is designed to grow and change. Ephesians 4.15, the Apostle Paul says, Rather speak the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're designed to grow just like a family and to change. And so we want to do that. Number eight, families have rules to follow. There are some things that are set out, aren't there? Parents, you set out some rules for the children. You say, hey, listen, this is what you're going to do. This is where you can play. You can do this after you've done chores. This is what you're going to do. These are the rules you're going to abide by. And that that old familiar comment, while you're under my house, you'll obey my rules. I heard that all my life. Um, looking forward one day to being able to say it to someone else. Ah, <laughs> while you're under my rule. Uh, under my roof, once I get it right, that is. Um, You'll abide by my rules. Uh, that's something that we hear said. But you know what? The truth is in the Christian realm, we have some rules to follow. And people say, ah, oh, I don't want to follow rules. Not rules in the sense that, you know, oh, well, you know, this is a legalistic. We have commandments that we're supposed to follow. And the word of God is our rule book, our instruction book for life. And we are supposed to do that. Titus 2, chapter 1, Titus 2, uh, verse 1 and 10. This is what Paul says to the pastor there. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what is true from my word, he says. Later on, he says, so that in everything, the church may adorn the doctrine of God, our Saviour. You know why we teach the word of God here in this church? It's because it is our intention that in being taught by the word, we would become like Christ. That's the only way we can by abiding by this. To abide in Christ is to abide in his word. To be spirit filled is exactly the same as letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly found in Colossians. And so this is our rule book for life, just like we have rules to follow in a physical family. Number nine, what else is a family physically? They are to love and provide for one another. The Bible tells us that that is true of the church of Jesus Christ also. In 1 John 3, 17 to 18, at the end of his life, the Apostle John, the last standing apostle. No more apostles after this. That's the last one. And he says this, but if anyone has the world's goods, we have the world's goods, don't we? If anybody has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Sincerity and in truth. 
If you see a brother or a sister in need in the church of Jesus Christ and you have the ability to help with it, why would you not? We're not here to amass an empire. We're not here to to gain the world's good. But if God has given them to you, then you better hand them out because God's given them to you for that purpose. Now, most of us think generally today that God gave me that so that I can have my own pleasure. That's not what this says. That says God gave them so that you can help the household of faith. That's the point. We are supposed to help one another. There's no, there's no social aspects in the Bible. There's no pension in the Bible. The idea of this early church was that the widows and the fatherless and the, and the afflicted in our midst are taken care of by those who have the ability to do so. I would so love to go back to that. I would love for us to be a place where we gather not just funds into a little bag here, but I'm talking about there's a need here. Someone needs a blanket. Someone needs a mattress. And we do it and I'm thrilled but to do it more, to give constantly of what we have because we have so much, so much. And so that is what churches. You say, is that really what the Apostle Paul was talking about? Out of my brother, come on, that's not what he meant. You know, all of those passages that I've just read to you are pretty much from the Apostle Paul's mouth. All of those texts I gave you. So when he says, my brother, this is what he brings to the table. When he says, Epaphroditus, you're my brother. See, this is church. That's what Paul means when he says, my brother. See, church is not a country club. It's a family. It is not burdensome. It is a blessing. It's not something to do. It's something we are. It's not tedious. It's tremendous. It's not dreary. It's delightful. It's not a once a week event, it's a life spent pursuing Christ together. And so uh, this morning, Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church visitors, other people, well, you go from, you come from another church, another local church, one of them, take these principles. When the Apostle Paul says, my brother, let's live this. Let's live this in a world that is supposed to look at the church and say, I know that they're Jesus' disciples because of the love they have for one another. Church is failing. Now, there's a huge message about love today. I get that. But I'm not talking about the message of love. I'm talking about the reality of love. Where they say, man, you're kidding. You guys love each other like that? Yeah. And and you husbands, you love your wives as though you would give your life like Christ did? What's happening? Imagine what would happen if the family model changed because of our love and suddenly husbands love their wives like Christ loved the church. Nothing is a problem. I will sacrifice everything for you. Imagine what would happen if that operated. In Christian families. Imagine what would happen in here and in this community if we really get on fire about, hey, you are my brother, you are my sister, you are my son, you're my daughter, whatever, in the Christian realm. One thing we may have neglected to mention, and I'll close with this thought, is that in the family of God, it's not just that you and I are brothers and sisters, but Christ is our brother. Have you ever thought... Seriously about that? Christ is our brother. Now, he's also the means by which we come to God the Father. But in places in the scripture, we are told that he says, you remember when his uh, family came to him, his physical family, and said, where is where is Jesus? And the Lord Jesus said, um, and someone said, hey, your mother and your brother and brethren are here. And the Lord Jesus says, who are they? These are my mothers, my brothers and my sisters. He wasn't saying physically. He was saying spiritually speaking, any disciple is my brother, my mother, my sister, and so on. The Lord Jesus Christ is in this relationship. He is our brother, our elder brother, the firstborn, 
of the dead, our great king, the one in whom we come to worship, the one by which we come to the father. We have the privilege of being in that family. Changes everything. Epaphroditus, I've only known you for a short amount of time, Paul says in brackets. You are my brother. Lord willing, next week, we're going to look at what it is to be a fellow worker. We'll we'll say that takes a week as well. Fellow soldier, messenger, minister. Might be done by Christmas. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for the reminder that uh, church... Is not foundation, it's family. Thank you for the reminder of what it is to be brethren in the truest sense, blood bought. Lord, help us to understand that here at Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church. Uh, Lord, we don't want to pattern uh, our relationships and our thinking on the world or even on what we see in the spiritual climate of the day in church today. Lord, we want to pattern it after the word of God, after the very sign that's behind me. Uh, Lord, that which is New Testament Christianity. And Lord, I'm not sure why you had me bring out so many points uh, in here uh, under this first heading, but I pray that it would be most helpful to us uh, and cause us to be mindful of what our relationship is with one another as a result of our relationship with you. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, love one another supremely. Help us to look for the opportunities to bless and help and strengthen and enable and encourage even more as we see the day approaching. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.